All right. Uh, welcome. Let's uh, let's begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we pray that as we come here today, um, that we would not be blinded by by our desires, that our spiritual sight would not be augmented or or covered by um, by our pride by our supposed knowledge and understanding of You. God, I pray that we wouldn't just look at this as a moment, as an experience, but as an opportunity to allow truth to sink deep into our hearts and minds, truth that we carry out with us, truth that changes, truth that transforms, truth that shapes us into the image of Your Son. And so, Lord, I pray that Your Spirit, who we know is here, because He is everywhere present, that He would be working in our hearts and our minds today as we open and, and dig into Your Word. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 8. We're going to be looking at verses 22 through 31. I think it's page 843, 844 in the Bibles that are there in the chairs. You know, we naturally depend and we trust upon things that we can experience, right? Nothing is more uh, real to us. We're not more fond of anything more or we're not more accustomed to truly acknowledging something than when we experience it through our senses, especially our sight. I mean, think about the things that you believe, the things that you hold on to, the things that you know to be true. They are strengthened by the fact that you've seen them, or by the fact that you experienced them. We want cold, hard evidence. We, we want proof if we are going to believe. We want you to empirically show me without a doubt. Now, I come from Missouri. Missouri is called the show me state, and it's called that for one reason and one reason only. If you want me to believe anything that you have to say, you have to prove it to me. You have to show me. And that's where I got the name. Right? That's the way that we live. That's the way that we think, right? That's why I won't believe that Oklahoma is a good basketball, gives a fo- good football team because you know, they, they just haven't shown me yet. I mean, <laughs> but seriously, uh, you, we want, we want proof. And over time, we've developed all sorts of cliches and euphemisms that we use all the time to get at this, right? We're like, we, we come up with the ideas like seeing is believing or Put your money where your mouth is. Or the proof is in the pudding, or the original phrase that it came from, the proof of the pudding is in the eating. Right? You've got to prove it to me. If you want me to believe you, if you want me to trust in what you say, you've got to show me. You've got to prove it. Nothing is so convincing as what we see. And we'll believe some crazy things if we earnestly believe that we saw them. Right? I mean... You know, y'all watch PBS and all the documentaries on the ghost hunters and the, you know, people digging into UFOs and, you know, even crazy people thinking about zombies and stuff. I don't know, like, just, you know, the, like, if you see it, you, you believe it, right? Even if your, your sight is wrong or is impaired, we, we trust in our eyes more than anything else. But trusting in our senses or experiences, you know, it's not all that bad. I have to say that, like even though we can trust in them too much, it's not a bad thing. Because otherwise, why wouldn't why would God give us senses? Why would God give us the ability to remember if He didn't want us to do that? We think about Adam and Eve, the first man and woman, the man and woman that God created, right? They they experienced joy and delight as they walked with God in the garden in the cool of the day, right? It was good and right for them to experience and delight in their senses as they fellowshiped with God. It was an honorable thing. But something happened. Something bad happened. They didn't believe God. Right? And as a result, they fell into sin. They sinned against Him, and as a result, mankind lost that fellowship with God. They were separated from Him. But not only that... They were separated by sin and unbelief so that now our senses, now our experiences have been twisted and we now make them prerequisites for faith. God, if you want me to believe in you, you've got to prove yourself to me. 
You've got to show yourself to me. I have to experience you if I am going to believe in you. We set ourselves up as the ultimate authority and we demand that if I am going to believe God, He has to show Himself to me. He has to prove Himself to me. I'll only believe it when I see it and when I declare it to be good and right. Which, let's face it, it's not much faith at all. If you have to rely upon your experience, if you have to rely upon your personal sight, it doesn't take any faith to do that. What faith does it take for you to believe in gravity? Seriously, you deal with it every day. What faith does it take for you to believe that the sky is blue? None, right? You just know that. The only way that it takes faith at all is if you are clinically insane or that somebody, some false teacher, has convinced you otherwise, that the sky is not blue, it's red, and that this is not gravity, this is actually anti-gravity. That's the only time it takes faith. To believe in what you see is not faith. It's actually self-authorized unbelief. But here's the real problem with our fallen need for proof. When we sinned, when sin entered the world, so did blindness. And I don't mean physical blindness, I mean spiritual blindness. We are spiritually blind. Seeing is not believing. It can't be. The proof is not in the pudding because we, by nature, lack the ability to perceive. Our senses are dull, our experiences are not absolute, and our discernment is, well, much less than discerning. The truth is that we are naturally blind and we need our eyes opened if we are to be reconciled to God. What Mark is going to show us this morning is that Jesus opens physical eyes to prove that He is the one who opens spiritual eyes so that we might see who He is and what He has done. Apart from that, we are blind, unable to see, unable to perceive. So please turn with me to Mark chapter 8, again verses 22 through 31. I think it's page 843, 844 there in the Bibles and the chairs. It says, And they came to Bethsaida, and some of the people brought to Jesus a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and he led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see men, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Jesus answered, or Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them, that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. In verses 22 through 26, we see that Jesus has the ability to open physical eyes. So Jesus has just recently, much to the surprise of his disciples, uh, miraculously fed 4,000 Gentiles in this region of the Decapolis. And and after that had happened, from there he headed west, back across the Sea of Galilee, into Jewish territory, where he was immediately confronted by the Jewish religious leaders, the, the Pharisees, who wanted empirical proof from him that he was from God. They wanted a sign from heaven. Now this is no ordinary miracle. This is not giving sight to the blind. This is not causing the deaf to hear. This is not even feeding 5,000. What they're wanting is an apocalyptic phenomenon to prove to them that Jesus was on their side, that God was for them by sending judgment down upon their enemies in order to bring comfort to them. They're wanting Jesus to say, okay, listen, if you are from God, you need to show me that you are on my side. And this is the way that you have to prove yourself to me. I want you to rain fire down upon those Gentiles that you just went and fed. Then I'll believe in you. 
You show me. You prove it to me that you are on my side. But here's the thing, guys. Jesus came not to show that he was on our side, but to give us enough truth, to give us enough knowledge to know who he is, why he came, and what it means to follow him, to show that we need to be on his side, not the other way around. And so these hard-hearted Pharisees, these unbelievers, they wanted more proof And they weren't satisfied with the countless teachings, the countless signs and wonders and miracles that he had already performed. They didn't care about how many Old Testament passages that he had fulfilled. It wasn't convincing enough to them that he was on their side. And so they refused to believe because they could not see, ultimately because they didn't want to see. So immediately after this brief encounter, with these obstinate, blind religious leaders, Jesus, he takes his disciples, they get back into the boat, and they head northeast up to, uh, across the Sea of Galilee to this village, towards the village of Bethsaida. And while he's there, while he's on the boat, this, he's, he's in, he encounters the disciples' own obstinance, their own unbelief, their own blindness, right? They've got this one loaf of bread with them, which wasn't enough to feed the 13 that were in the boat. And so they began to get worried, and they began to discuss about how they didn't have any food, any bread to eat. And, but they're in the boat with the guy that just fed 5,000 plus Jews with five loaves of bread, and he's just fed 4,000 Gentiles with seven loaves of bread, but yet they're worried because their one loaf of bread wouldn't be enough for them. You see, the demand that the Pharisees had given had influenced them. They've been influenced by the unbelief of these Pharisees, and now they're beginning to question. They're beginning to doubt. They're beginning to wonder, and their hearts are still hardened. They're still blind to who Jesus really is. And so he asked them in verses 17 through 21, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you collect? And they answered him, Twelve. And then he asked again, of the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? Our passage today comes immediately after that conversation. In verse 22, they came up to their destination. They arrived at Bethsaida, this primarily Jewish fishing village on the north side of the Sea of Galilee, right on the eastern side of where the Jordan flows into the sea. And it's a home to many of his disciples. And while he's there, it says that some of the people brought to him a blind man, and he begged, and they begged him to touch him so that he would heal him. Now, Probably due to the simplicity of this account, uh, the other gospel writers, they don't mention it. But we have to remember what John said. He said, listen, if we wrote all that Jesus said and all that Jesus did, the world cannot contain all the books that would be written about him. Right? It seems even more surprising, though, that that Mark would record this sight-giving miracle, given the fact that it is so similar to a miracle that he's already performed in chapter 7. In verses 31 through 37, where he heals the deaf man with the speech impediment. In both cases, you know, this crowd brings this this disabled man to him to touch him, right? Because they want him to heal it. There's all these similarities between the two. I mean, in addition to the the fact that the crowd brought the man, this disabled man, and they wanted him to, to touch and heal. In both cases, Jesus takes the man aside privately. He draws him away from the crowd, away from the village. Verse 23 says that he took the blind man by the hand and he led him out of the village. In both cases, you see Jesus' compassion, Jesus' intimacy, his love for these men as individuals. With the deaf man, he wanted to communicate with that man. He wanted to show him what he was going to do. He wanted to help him to understand. But with this blind man, he himself takes the blind man by the hand and he leads them out of the village. He didn't have to do that, but he did. Because he's compassionate. In both cases, Jesus uses his spit and touches the men, right? Again in verse 23, and when he had spit on his eyes and he laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? The amazing thing is, Jesus used what was considered to be an unclean bodily fluid. And let's face it, it's still considered to be pretty icky, right? 
and use that to cleanse the man of his disability. And he lays his hands on the man, both times. In the Old Testament, every time it mentions that you're laying on of hands, it's talking about the sacrificial system. And the sinful Israelites, when they recognize their sin, when they know that they committed the sin, and even yearly on their Day of Atonement, they would take this perfect, unblemished sacrifice, this sacred animal, and then they would take their hands and they would lay their hands on that sacrifice. And they would pray that their sin would be transferred to this sacrifice. So sin is consecrated to the sacred. But when Jesus comes, you see the opposite thing happen. Now it is the sacred transferred, consecrated to the sinner. It's amazing. And in both, Jesus charged them to tell no one. In verse 26, Jesus tells that formerly blind man not to even enter his own village. There are really only three differences, all of which I think are important, between this deaf man and this blind man's account. This man, uh, the deaf man was probably a Gentile, more than likely. This man was more than likely a Jew. The first man was deaf. This man was blind. The first man was healed in an instant. This man, it came in stages. It was progressive. And I want to discuss every one of those just briefly. The first, we see that that one is a, a Jew, one is a Gentile. I mean, as we've seen before, Jesus doesn't show partiality. He doesn't play favorites. Right? There's, there's not intrinsic worth in somebody. There's not external worth. The, your skin color doesn't make you better. Your language doesn't make you better. Right? It's not that the Jews were better than, than the Gentiles. What we see every time is that rich or poor, man or woman, religious or sinner, important or marginalized, adult or child, Jew or Gentile, Jesus uses similar miracles to show that, that He heals different people with the same love, the same blessing. It is unbiased, and therefore it should be extended to others without partiality. We cannot play favorites based upon our preferences. There's nothing inside a person that makes that person more worthy or acceptable in God's eyes. Therefore, we cannot play favorites. We can't lean on our personal bias. We can't lean upon our prejudice or our comfortability preferring some while neglecting others. If God has chosen them, if Jesus has healed them, if Jesus has touched them, then you have to accept them. You need to love them because they are now God's people. They are adopted into God's family. And you are to love them as brothers and sisters in Christ. Who cares how old or young they are? Who cares what their dress is or what kind of music that they like? Who cares about their skin color? Who cares about their nationality? Who cares about their cultural preferences? None of that matters. And if you're showing favoritism towards one while neglecting the other, then there's some problems there. That's a practical denial of what Christ came to do. You are showing partiality. Read James. Second, an important distinction was that one was deaf and the other was blind. But both were unable to perceive Christ because of their disability. So Christ removed that obstacle so that they could hear His words, so that they could see His actions, so that they could see, understand, believe who He is and why He came, and they might be able to profess that He is the Christ. But there's even more to it than that. These two accounts show that Jesus is fulfilling Isaiah 35, 5 and 6. Isaiah talks about when the glory of the Lord comes. This is a future event. When the glory of the Lord comes, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. The lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute, same word as used in in chapter 7 there, will sing for joy. Then God will redeem and ransom His people and they shall walk in His way. This happens when Jesus comes. 
the glory of the Lord is there. But there's even a closer textual tie. Alright? Sandwiched in between these two miracles, the miracle of Jesus healing the deaf man and Jesus healing the blind man, is Jesus questioning the blindness and deafness of his disciples in chapter 8, verses 14 through 21. Juxtaposed between these two miraculous accounts of the hearing and sight is the deafness, is the blindness, is the unbelief of His disciples. Verse 18 says, Having eyes do you not see? And having ears do you not hear? And do you not remember? He's asking these disciples who have followed Him for over a year now, Listen, you've heard My words. You know that I teach with authority. As with the authority that comes from God. Do you not yet hear? He said, listen, you've been with me. You've experienced life with me for over a year now. You've seen every miracle, every wonder that I have performed. What more experience, what more proof do you need? Do you still not see? Do you not remember? Do you not get it? Jesus pulls these two men aside to show His intimate compassion. He does it to avoid exciting this misunderstanding crowd, but He ultimately does it to challenge the unbelief of His disciples. You realize that that they were the only spectators to these two miracles. Jesus has drawn these men away. Away from the crowd, away from the villages. The only people that are there are Jesus and His disciples. He healed these two so that His disciples would see and hear. And the third important difference between these two healings is that one is progressive. Right, verses 24 through 26, it says that Jesus had spit on His eyes and laid His hands on them and asking, do you see anything? And then the man looked up and he said, I see men, but they look like trees walking. And then Jesus laid His hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes, and his sight was restored, and there was he could saw everything clearly. And he sent him home, saying, Do not even enter the village. This man's sight was given progressively. The deaf man healed in an instant. This man, it was progressive. And you kind of have to ask the question, why? why? Why did this one come in stages? Why did Jesus not heal him instantly? Right? Well, I don't think it's because this was harder This is not more challenging to Jesus than, say, causing a dead girl to be raised to life. This is not more difficult than casting out a legion of demons. right? This is not more difficult than walking on water or calming the storm. And this is certainly not more difficult than feeding thousands and thousands and thousands of people miraculously. So why does it come in stages? Well, I think there's a big implication behind this miracle. I don't think that I'm being allegorical in suggesting that Jesus restores spiritual sight to those who are blind. He does it progressively. He doesn't do, he doesn't restore spiritual sight all at once. He does it progressively. Now we'll explore this more in a couple of minutes, but what we've seen so far is that the disciples and the others who followed him are still blind and deaf as to who Jesus is, as to why he came, as to what it really means to follow him. But little by little, they're understanding more and more, and more. Though their hearts are still hard, and they still wonder, who is this then that even the wind and the waves obey Him? The very next thing that happens is that Peter is going to confess that Jesus is the Christ. At last, he's seeing. He's getting it, right? Well, what happens next? Anybody know? Jesus has to rebuke him, right? Because Peter comes up and he said. Jesus basically says what he's going to do, that he's going to suffer, die, and be raised again. And and Peter doesn't like this. And so Peter's like, no, 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 no. That's not going to happen, Jesus. That's not going to happen. And so Jesus says, hey, get behind me, Satan. (laughs) Wait, I I, I thought you were getting it. I thought you saw. I thought you understood. But now, clearly not. Clearly you don't get it. Revelation is a process. His sight is progressive, just like this blind man. And I don't think it's, it's allegorical, allegorical, given the context, to find meaning in what the man saw. The man looked up and he said, I see men, but they're like trees walking. Everybody's like, 
picturing, you know, Treebeard, you know, kind of walking around, you know, right now. You were, weren't you? Yeah, yeah, uh-huh, yeah. Well, I think there's significance behind that. Now, remember, he's led away from the village, right? So the only people that this man is looking at are Jesus and the disciples. I think he's looking at the disciples specifically when he says, I see men, but like trees walking, right? Hard trees, immobile trees, seemingly lifeless trees walking. Peter's sight of Jesus as the Christ is like that of men like trees walking. Hardness, immobility, lifelessness must continue to be transformed so that he might be restored and see clearly. And so far from all... For all the authoritative teachings that they have heard, the disciples still don't hear. And for all the experiences that they've had, for all that they have seen Jesus do, they still do not see. They are getting it, but gradually. He's recognizing that Jesus is the Christ, but he doesn't know what that means. He's like, he's like a man like a tree walking. And so what about you? I mean, what do you see? Do you see anything? Are you men like trees walking? What's it going to take for you to see? Fortunately for us, Jesus opens physical eyes second to prove that He is the one who opens spiritual eyes. Jesus heals this blind man, and the next thing that they do, according to verse 27, is to make their way up to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. This is a pagan, Gentile-dominant area. It's about 25 miles north of Bethsaida where they've been. And on his way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? Now, we've seen throughout Mark that Jesus doesn't simply tell us who he is. Jesus shows us who he is. He wants to... He, he acquiesces to our request, and he actually proves himself in a lot of ways. Unfortunately, it doesn't really work out, Right? But these physical miracles, signs, and wonders that he performs are meant to be tangible, physical testimonies that Jesus is fulfilling the prophecies and promises of the Old Testament. He does this to reveal who he is. Jesus performs physical miracles in order to prove the spiritual. I mean, starting completely back in chapter 1. Chapter 1, verses you know, 20 through 28, Jesus goes into the synagogue and he, he casts an unclean spirit un, out of a man in there, in, in the synagogue, in order to prove that Jesus has the authority to command and to teach. Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law of a fever in order to prove that he should be served. Jesus cleanses the leper to prove that he is compassionate and that he is willing to purify those who are unclean. Jesus causes the paralytic to walk, remember, in order to prove that he has the authority to forgive sin. He heals a man with a withered hand to show his goodness, to show his desire to give and to save life. Jesus casts out a legion of demons out of a man in order to give him a right and understanding mind. Jesus heals a hemorrhaging woman to prove that he is the one who gives faith. He raises the girl from the dead to prove that He gives hope that casts out all fear. He frees the Syrophoenician's daughter to prove that He is a merciful Lord. He gives the deaf and the mute ears to truly hear and a voice to proclaim His excellencies. And He heals this man who is blind in order to prove that He makes the spiritually blind see. It's no coincidence that you see this trajectory of Jesus healing, physically healing a deaf and mute man so that he can hear and proclaim, that he challenges the blindness and deafness of his disciples, that he physically heals the blind man, and then the very next thing that happens is that Peter recognizes and declares that Jesus is the Christ. His spiritual sight was the direct result of the spiritual work in his heart which was evidenced by the physical healing of this blind man. You know, our ability to perceive or to understand, to see, to believe is the work of God in our lives. It is not external, experiential 
empirical proofs that are convincing. It's not in terms of apologetic proofs. They're not going to, to show us, oh yeah, that's right, that Jesus, you know, Jesus did rise from the grave. It's not philosophical reasoning that is going to convince us that our worldview is wrong. What it's going to take is that Jesus has to open our eyes, alright? Peter is not smarter than any of the other disciples. Right? There's nothing in him that makes him better. In fact, Peter's pretty much proved that he's the dumbest of the disciples. I mean, Jesus, you know, he, he figures out that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus says, hey, guess what? I'm going to suffer, die, and rise again. And Jesus, and, and Peter's like, no, you're not. Come on. You know, he has to be rebuked. And, and you see this happen over and over and over again. No, in, in Matthew's account of this declaration that Peter makes, in Matthew 16, verses 6 and 7, Matthew adds some important information. It says that Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, which means son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Your understanding, your spiritual sight, your recognition of who I am is not the result of man. It's not the result of flesh and blood. It's not the result of your wisdom or your work. It is the result of my Father in heaven who has revealed this to you. You can see because He has given you sight. It's not the result of your works. It's not the result of your smarts but is given by the grace of God. Paul adds in Galatians chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, But when God had set me apart from before I was born, and He who called me by His grace was pleased to reveal His Son to me in order that I might preach Him among the Gentiles. And he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, that this progressive revelation, this gradual sight, is not given just to the apostles. It's not exclusively for Peter and Paul, but it is for everyone. It says that we all, with unveiled face, are beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed, uh, transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. This comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. The Holy Spirit works in the lives of believers so that they can see. He works to enlighten the eyes of their hearts so that they can behold, so that they can progressively understand and see the glory of the Lord and through His work continually be transformed into the same image of one degree of glory to another. (laughs) Praise God for that. That this is His work in our lives, giving us the spiritual sight, giving this understanding to us, and transforming us to be like Christ. Really like Christ. Not just like, hey, you're like Christ, just like put it on a name tag, but that you really are. But not everyone will see. Just a few verses later, Paul goes on in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 3-6, through 6, that even if our gospel is veiled... It is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the glory, the gospel of the glory of Christ, which, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as servants for your sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The truth is, we are all naturally blind. And apart from God shining His light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ into our hearts, we will stay that way. We too will perish, blinded by our unbelief. Unless He does this work in our hearts, all proofs, all experiences, it doesn't matter what it is, will not result in saving faith. Now, we've grown accustomed to thinking that we, as humans, can do a lot of really amazing things. Right? Think about physical sight. There's been lots of of medical and technological advancements to bring sight to the blind. Right? 
and we begin to boast in this glory. We can overcome cataracts. We can do, you know, we can overcome glaucoma. We're, we're doing eye transplants and all this kind of crazy stuff. But here's, here's a fact for you. There's still 161 million people who are blind in this world. 161 million. The reality is we're not even making a dent in the problem, but yet we exult in our physical ability, the power of flesh and blood to overcome physical sight. But we're really not even touching it. Even more so when it comes to spiritual sight. Flesh and blood can do nothing there. Absolutely nothing. Only the one who has the power to give physical sight to every living being on the planet is the only one who can give spiritual sight to those who are blind. It is all of His grace. It is not their work. It is not their worth. It is not their wisdom. It is His grace, His kindness. Peter was given sight through the grace of God in Jesus Christ. But just because saving spiritual sight is the result of God's sovereign grace, it doesn't mean that we don't have to take personal responsibility. Okay? These two things go together. They're not mutually exclusive. They go hand in hand. They are compatible. We don't exactly know how, but God in His wisdom does. We have personal responsibility, having been given eyes to see, to profess Christ. Jesus first asked His disciples there in verse 27, Who do people say that I am? And, he, and they told Him. They said, John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Others, one of the prophets. But telling Jesus what others say about Him is not enough. Right? They have to believe it for themselves. They must make a personal declaration of His true identity. In verse 29 then, He asked them, But who do you say that I am? To which Peter answered, You are the Christ. You see, it's not enough to jump in with the crowd and to think that, that Jesus must be the promised return of Elijah from Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. It's not enough to just chime in with what everyone else is saying, thinking that Jesus was one of the prophets of old, like Moses from Deuteronomy 18.15. And it's certainly not enough to mistakenly jump in with Herod and say, hey, I think that Jesus is really John the Baptist come back from the grave. But here's the thing, guys. It's not even enough for you to jump in with a crowd and suggest that Jesus is the Christ if that's not truly coming from your heart. It's not enough just to be in the crowd that's, that professes Christ. You have to profess Christ. Bandwagons won't get you there. They're a lot of fun, but really they mean nothing. If you profess a wrong understanding of, of Him, if you just get the title right, but it's not based upon the truth, if it's not based upon God's revelation of the Christ, then it means nothing. And if it is not your personal confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, your Savior, your Lord, then it means nothing. And let's face it, when it comes to faith, when it comes to that profession, there is where the proof is in the pudding. Now this is a big deal because so often we think that if we just surround ourselves with those who profess Christ, that we are okay. That we're fine. That their profession somehow works for us. We're doing the right things. We're around the right kind of people. So I'm good. I'm okay. Or we might think that as long as I give Him the proper title, if I confess Him with my lips, while my heart is far from Him, then I'm okay. When in reality, Christ is not Lord of my heart. Jesus cares that you profess Him earnestly with your whole heart. It's not enough that the guy or the gal sitting next to you has. You must. Jesus is asking each of you, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? I can't bypass that question while saying, well, you know, in the Baptist catechism, the, the question, what is the gospel, is answered this way. Holy God in love became perfect man to bear my blame. On the cross He took my sin. By His death I live again. 
Jesus is like, good job answering the question. Now what do you believe? That's not my question. That's the catechism's question. It's good and wise and it's, I want to learn those things, but it's not enough. He wants to know that you believe. Jesus, I believe that you are the second person of the triune God. I believe that you took on flesh, that you came, that you lived a perfect life, a life of perfect obedience to God, a life that I can't live, that I can't even begin to live, and that you gave that life up as a substitute by dying on the cross as a substitute for my sin and for those whom you have chosen, for those that you have touched. And I, I believe with all my heart that you rose from the grave again. That three days later, you rose in order to prove that you were the Son of God. In order to show that God's wrath against my sin has been satisfied. And I now have the hope of eternal life. That I can be reconciled to God. That this is my promise. That this is my hope. That you are my Savior. That you are my Lord. And I want to follow that. I am dying to myself. I don't need any more experience or proof. I just want to be with you. That's what he wants to hear. Anything less than that doesn't matter. You don't get there because you're around the gospel. You have to own it. It has to be yours. This leads into the third point. That Jesus opens physical eyes to prove that he is the one who opens spiritual eyes. To see who he is and what he has done. Now I'll deal with that command of silence in verse 30 next week. But we all, like Peter, must confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. That is what it takes. Not that he is some great moral teacher. Not that he is some wise man. We can't believe that he is some earthly king from the line of David who who basically came to, to vanquish Israel's enemies and wants to restore them to political power. We must confess that Jesus is the suffering Christ, the sovereign Son of the living God. We must affirm that He created us. Therefore, He owns us. My life is not my own. I live for Him who died. We must confess that He is real. That He is authoritative. We must confess that His words are true. We must submit to Him as Lord and King, not just as Savior. Let's face it, we really want that first part, but we hate the second. Because deep down, we want to live as if this is my world and I am God. I want control of my life. I don't want to hand that over to some guy who died 2,000 years ago. Never mind the fact that he's risen. But it's not enough for us to be given spiritual sight of who Jesus truly is as the Christ and the Son of God. Because seeing who he is should force us to look at ourselves in light of him. Now, we like the idea of comparing. You know, we like comparison. But the thing is, we want to compare ourselves to the worst of the worst. I look pretty good in the high, you know, when you compare me to Jeffrey Dahmer. I do. But not when I, you compare me to Christ. The only comparison that we can possibly make is that. Yeah, I am not Christ. I am not Jesus. Would we do that? When we look at Christ and we look at ourselves in light of who He is, then we begin to see ourselves rightly. Then we begin to see our, our vileness, our wretchedness. We, we begin to see how bad our sin really is. If we compare ourselves to Jeffrey Dahmer, I'm good. We compare our, ourselves to Christ, then woe is me. I am undone. That's the way it is. The reality is we're hopeless apart from that. And then when we begin to understand why Jesus came, then then we begin to see what He has done to overcome that weakness, that wretchedness, that vileness, that unworthiness, that hopelessness that we all have. And then it becomes marvelous. It's only then that we can begin to understand verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. It's only then that we can really, really take that to heart. 
Let's face it, we, we just pass over that verse so many times and we pay very little attention to it. We, we accept the historical facts even, that Jesus died on the cross for sin. But we don't experience that because we're still in love with ourselves. And I wasn't originally going to share this, but um, say you're driving in the car and somebody comes up and they just plow into you, right? They just crush your car. Three things can happen as a result of that. This guy who has plowed into your car, he can pay to fix your car, or you can pay to fix your car, or the car goes unfixed, right? Those are the three options. There are no other options, right? I mean, I suppose somebody else could step in and say, I'll pay for your car, but that's, in this world, that doesn't happen, right? So for sake of analogy, just these three things, right? This guy pays for it, you pay for it, or it goes unpaid, right? The car's unfixed. But it's more serious than that. Say your son was in the car. Your only son. Driving down the road, this car broadsides you and it kills your son. Then that guy, even if he's willing to pay to fix your car, and even if he goes to prison for vehicular manslaughter, it's not enough to replace your son, is it? Even if that man were to say, here, take my son. I killed your son. I want you to have my son as a replacement. It's not the same. It's not, is it? You can't replace it. So the first option is gone. Now you're left with either I can forgive this man that he killed my son because he wants to be forgiven or the enmity, the animosity, the separation, the hatred between he and I will remain for eternity. Those are the two options. Guess which man you are in the story. You're not the one driving the car. You're the one that broadsided it. You recognize that when you sin against God, it's not just like putting a scratch in somebody's car. It's killing God's son. You killed God's son. Your sin put him there. Your sin of pride, your sin of little white lies, your sin of, of exalting in yourself, your, 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 your sin of failing to love your neighbor as yourself, you name it, you put him there. You killed him. And you are left with two options. Either you can fall on your knees and you can say, Lord, forgive me, because I know that even if I were to give everything, even if I were to pay to fix your car, even if I was to give my only son for your only son, it would not be enough. I can't replace your son. And so forgive me. Or you can carry that to the grave and for all eternity be separated from God. That is the weight of what verse 31 means. And it applies directly to you. You put him there. You killed him. You in your hell-bound pursuit to live for yourself, to live for as if this is your world and your God, your, your desire to forget God and live without Him, that has put Him there. And you are left with this option. Either I can embrace the overwhelming love of God that led His Son to the cross and receive grace and forgiveness and mercy, or I can continue in death and in destruction and in enmity, being an enemy to Him. Are you really going to sit there and pretend like you're okay? Like you got nothing to work on? That things are fine? Are you going to insist that He give you more proof? That he needs to just reveal himself in this way or that way so that I will be comforted by his presence. What more experiences do you need? What more holy moments, what more mountaintop experiences do you really need to believe? Is this not enough? Jesus suffered and was rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the scribes, and, and was killed and three days later rose from the grave. Why are you going to keep pretending that you are God and demand more personal experiences to see and believe Him? Are you going to sit there and simply assume that you're in, that you are okay, that you are just fine, that you're really not that bad? 
I want to highlight the fact that Jesus was killed by the elders, by the chief priests, by the scribes. He wasn't killed by the worst of humanity. He was killed by the best that humanity had to offer. The law abiders, the good people, the holy rollers, the religious people, those that tried desperately to keep themselves unstained from the world. They were the ones that killed and rejected Christ. So if the best that the world has to offer were the ones that killed Him, you're not any better off. You're not safe to assume that you're okay. This applies to you. It applies to me. No one, no one in the world is exempt from this. So stop sitting around and demanding more proof and calling for more experience. You have been given enough truth. You've been given enough light. You have been given enough sight to respond. Turn away from your vain, empty, pointless pursuit of living for yourself and believe in who He is, why He came, and what it means to follow Him. Submit to His truth, to His Word. Stop closing your eyes with your demands, with your desires, with your comforts, with your willingness, with yourself. And open up your eyes. Answer the question. Do you see anything? Let's pray together. Father, I pray that we would open our eyes. God, we know that this is truth. I pray that it was faithfully proclaimed. And I pray that your grace would be in it to apply it to our hearts and minds. That if we're honest, there shouldn't be one of us in the room that feels comfortable right now. We shouldn't be. If we are, we're as blind and dumb as Peter. God, help us. Help us to see how great Christ is. Help us to see His great worth, His immeasurable value. Help us to see His ultimate sacrifice and to find Him truthful, to find Him beautiful, and to respond to it. Stop living for ourselves. I've got to pray that, that if there are those here that, that maybe this is the first time that the gospel has really resounded with them, that they would talk to someone. And I pray that for those who have been around the gospel and have accepted the gospel, that it would be fresh, that it would be new, that it would be powerful, that it would be transforming. And we thank you so much that we are not left unto ourselves, but we have your word, that we have your spirit. And God, we thank you that you are faithful when we are not. I thank you for the forgiveness that is offered in Christ. May we embrace it. It's in his name we pray. Amen.